This is an AMI podcast. This show contains content including an explicit reference to suicide that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Juwita Gupta and this is The Pulse. In 2016, following the Carter decision, the Supreme Court of Canada legalized medically assisted death or MAID in Canada and tasked the government to develop legislation to govern MAID. In the lead up to and well after the Carter decision, the debate in Canada has been vigorous and some would say divisive. In 2019, following a second legal decision, the government was asked to revisit the eligibility criteria for MAID to encompass those people whose death was not reasonably foreseeable. The result is Bill C7, which has itself sparked discussion and debate. I feel we are on the cusp of change. Being a person with a disability, I admit I was intrigued by the issues underpinning the discussion on medically assisted death in Canada. Is a medically assisted death simply a matter of choice and dignity or is it a statement on the value of some lives over others? Over the next hour, we'll go on a journey to uncover the facets of the debate surrounding physician-assisted death. We'll hear from proponents and opponents, examine some of the current debate and discourse, and find out whether there is any common ground. To better contextualize the discussion on MAID in Canada, we need to go back at least to the early 90s. The Rodriguez decision in 1993 was a landmark Supreme Court of Canada decision where the prohibition on assisted death was challenged as contrary to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms by a terminally ill woman, Sue Rodriguez. Although Sue Rodriguez was unable to change the law at that time, her struggle opened up a much larger public debate about physician-assisted death in Canada. I'm uh, Sven Robinson, a long-time uh, Federal Democrat member of Parliament from Burnaby, British Columbia, and currently the J.S. Woodsworth Scholar at Simon Fraser University in B.C. Sue Rodriguez was uh, a, uh, a young woman, a mother, athlete, uh, who in uh, the early 1990s was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, who... Um, Uh, decided that uh, in the in the time that she had left and it was probably not a lot of time she had a very aggressive form of ALS that she wanted to uh, to work to change the laws in Canada around uh, uh, the uh, the right to die at the time that she chose the right to die with dignity as she as she put it i met sue uh, in 1992 and um we um initially met through a, a common uh, acquaintance who was very involved with the right to die movement and we became close friends and uh, she um spoke out uh, on many occasions she went to uh, to court to the BC Supreme Court and ultimately to the Supreme Court of of Canada i arranged for her to speak to the uh, the parliamentary justice committee i was a member of the canadian parliament at the time and sat on the the justice committee and she spoke very powerfully very eloquently to the justice committee about the need for for changes in the law um we went to the the highest court of the land the supreme court of canada lost by the narrowest possible majority it was five five judges to four at that time in 1993 um but uh sue uh, was determined that she would ultimately make the final decision as to when uh she wanted to die and uh, she asked me to be with her uh i was it was of course an honor and and a, and a, and a privilege to be with my dear friend at that time and um So on the 12th of February 1994 she died and her death sparked a debate that uh, continued for many many years until ultimately the Supreme Court of Canada revisited its 1993 decision uh and in the Carter decision uh in 2015 the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the right to, to die in terms that Rodriguez had been seeking many years previously the arguments that Sue Rodriguez made which I think was the most powerful is that for many people just knowing that they would have the right to make this decision themselves if it came to that gave them comfort and so i think yes there's debate yes there's there's opposition but uh, 
at the end of the day, I think Canadians will, will come together and recognize that this is a this is a good thing, and it's a re, it's a way of respecting one of the most basic and fundamental rights that, that Canadians should have. Even after the Carter decision, not everyone was convinced about medical assistance in dying, and many disability organizations felt, at minimum, that there needed to be adequate and appropriate safeguards. My name is David Baker. I'm a lawyer who's been involved in human rights charter and disability law for more than 40 years. I was the founder of a public interest law center serving people with disabilities called Arch. I was there for 20 years. And I'm the founder of a small public law law firm called Baker Law. And I'm pleased to have as uh, my partner, uh, Kim Srivastava. I served as legal counsel to the Canadian Association for Community Living and uh, the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, uh, both in the Rodriguez case and in uh, the Carter case, both before the British Columbia Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. The primary issues in both cases were uh, under Section 1 of the Charter, the fundamental issue about whether medical assistance in dying represented a violation of Section 7, the life, liberty, security of the person, uh, was essentially resolved. And the issues uh, had to do with whether there were sufficient safeguards in place to allow the state to participate or physicians on behalf of the state to participate in offering as an essential, uh, essentially a medical service, medical assistance in dying. And the disabled community had grave concerns about the circumstances of focusing on people with disabilities for MAID. There were concerns about the financial incentives within government budgeting and planning to make MAID as readily accessible as possible so as to reduce costs for long-term care and palliative care amongst other essential services that are life-sustaining. There was also, I think, a concern about the stigmatization of disability and the ways in which people, including people who have recently become disabled, are in fact suicidal and not really making a considered judgment about uh, medical assistance in dying, but are reacting to the presence of disability before they have the opportunity to come to grips with uh, living with a disability and what that can mean. As it turns out, Sven Robinson agrees about the importance of consulting with people with disabilities. I, I want to be really clear that there's there's one group of people that I, I, I think we really genuinely have to listen to the concerns about. I, I respectfully disagree with some of the key issues that they raise, but many of the groups representing people with disabilities are concerned that, that this legislation should not in any way diminish the importance of, of, of their lives and the dignity of their lives. And, and, and so I think it's really important that while we support these changes, we do whatever we can to, to, to understand where these these concerns are coming from and, and respond to them seriously. Uh, I think also we've got to do a lot more in, in the area of palliative care. Uh, we will have to make sure that no one, no one is, is requesting uh, the right to die because of pain or uh, improper pain management or because they don't have access to the best possible palliative care. And I know that I remember as well that some of the concerns that were raised by palliative care physicians and, and, and healthcare workers um, uh, saying, look, we've got to pay more attention to palliative care. I agree with that totally. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, um, it's not either or. I think we've got to be providing more support for palliative care, far more support for people living with disabilities, uh, including uh, uh, economic, uh, financial support, um, and support for the right to, for people to make these decisions for themselves. So how are we doing when it comes to the provision of palliative care? I caught up with a lawyer at Baker Law who is working on a legal case to ensure palliative care is a universal right. I'm Kimberly Shavastava. I'm a lawyer working at Baker Law. I worked on some of the submissions for the Carter case, for some of the interveners on the Carter case at the Supreme Court level. 
now I'm working on a charter that is going to be focused on increasing the safeguards um, associated with medical assistance in dying. The way in which medical assistance in dying was legalized in Canada, so after Carter, the government said that MAID would be accessible in accordance with the five pillars of the Canada Health Act. So public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. So essentially, if you met the criteria that the government set out, you could access medical assistance in dying. Now, the, the MAID Act, or the Act to Amend the Criminal Code, which legalized medical assistance in dying, also talked about palliative care, but it made a very different commitment. So it talk, the government said that they would work with the provinces to facilitate access to palliative care across the country. Now, palliative care, the provision of the services, that, is, is, that falls within the provincial jurisdiction. Provinces are responsible for delivering healthcare services. But the federal government oversees the Canada Health Act and, and provides funding for those services. So the way in which medical assistance in dying was legalized was that the federal government signaled to the provinces that it needed to be available universally and it needed to be accessible in, that, in the same manner. That's not what they said about palliative care. There's lots of statistics available that show that palliative care is not widely available across Canada and certainly not in a, in a universal manner. It comes down to you know, what services are available in, in which location and you know, it kind of comes down to where you live and if you're in a hospital's catchment area or not. And um, there's all kinds of criteria about whether or not you can, you can get the service. And, and if you get some service, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's enough. Um, so the, the reality is that Canadians do not have guaranteed access to palliative care, uh, but they do have guaranteed access to medical assistance in dying. The, the danger, we would say, is, is the way in which medical assistance in dying was legalized. So not that it's available, but that there are no other reasonable alternatives available. And so the focus in, in our case will be on palliative care in particular. And we'll be arguing that um, this disproportionately, the lack of palliative care disproportionately um, puts persons with disabilities and elderly people at risk. So clearly, the issues are complex. I was motivated to find out how jurisdictions like Switzerland, where MAID has been legal for much longer, have tried to resolve some of these issues, and in what ways they've tried to safeguard the interests of vulnerable people. My name is Sylvan Lulay. I'm a team member of the non-profit membership association Dignitas to Live with Dignity to Die with Dignity in Switzerland. Medical aid in dying, understood as a human right, protects life and the right to life because it provides real choice at home. In Switzerland, medical aid in dying in the form of assistance in suicide is legal, but voluntary euthanasia is prohibited. In a court case done by our non-profit membership association, Dignitas, the Swiss Supreme Court in 2006, and then the European Court of Human Rights in 2011, acknowledged that the freedom and right of a competent individual to decide by what, by what means and at what point his or her life will end, uh, this is the part of the right to respect for private life protected by the European Convention on Human Rights. So there is a right to die, alongside the right to live. Both are fundamental human rights. In Switzerland, with this 35-year-long 30, practice of medical aid in dying, one can see that the general law provisions are a sufficient frame to conduct and monitor med medical aid in dying. It has become somewhat of a common claim by opponents of medical aid in dying that there are vulnerable people to whom introducing medical aid in dying would have a negative effect. And hardly anyone asks, do seemingly vulnerable people actually feel vulnerable themselves? Could it be that it is a pretext argument? Because seemingly well-meant protection of certain individual or groups can easily turn into paternalism and stigmatization. The call for protection is sometimes abused to create fears. And in the result, this can lead to making it difficult to sheer impossible to make use of freedom of choice over one's life and end of life and access 
help for putting personal choices into practice. Do you think the normal inherent human instinct to live life as long as possible, an education that teaches society respect and empathy for each other, and the state's duty to protect the right to life, part of which is installing a top-quality healthcare system, are the essential protective and sufficient measures so that everyone receives the maximum health care, which they deserve, of course, and those who wish to have access to medical aid in dying can make use of it, whilst others who do not entertain any thought of medical aid in dying are simply, bother, are simply not bothered with it. We at Dignitas have, since being founded over 22 years ago, we have the goal of becoming unnecessary. And we are very happy that the Canadian Supreme Court in 2015 made the decision to which which paved uh, the, the way so that Canadians don't need to come over to Switzerland to Dignitas anymore, but can have choice and the human right at home. And the lively discussion in public about the issue uh, is the way forward. It takes debate, it takes discussing, it takes in a society finding uh, the, the best solution for what uh, what people want. It might seem that issues are largely settled in Switzerland, but lively public debate is ongoing in Canada. Dignitas was heavily involved with the Carter case and keeps in regular contact with made advocacy groups in Canada. I reached out to one such advocate in favor of medical assistance in dying to get her thoughts on Bill C-7. I'm Helen Long, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. The medical assistance in dying legislation is a, a charter right. It's protected by the Canadian Constitution. And every Canadian thus has the right um, to access it, assuming that they meet the eligibility criteria that is set out in the legislation. Well, Bill C-7, we think, is an important step in the evolution of the legislation. Um, as I'm sure you know, it addresses specifically the Trushan decision, so the removal of the clause that um, your, death, your natural death be reasonably foreseeable as an eligibility requirement. Uh, that's important because it allows Canadians who previously may not have been able to access MAID, but who are suffering intolerably and who have a grievous and irremediable condition, it allows them now to apply um, and be assessed and, and considered for approval of a medically assisted death. The second significant change in that legislation is what we like to call Audrey's Amendment. Um, it's the waiver of final consent. So in the event, uh, much like Audrey Parker, Audrey was a woman in Nova Scotia who had um, cancer and had wanted to spend one final Christmas with her family. Uh, because she was at such risk of losing capacity as a result of her condition, she was forced to take her death early uh, because she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to consent when her scheduled date came. So Audrey's amendment, or the waiver of final consent, it allows an individual who has been assessed and approved and who has already selected a date for their made procedure, if they lose capacity in the window between those two dates, they are able to have their medically assisted death anyway. The clinician is given uh, permission to go ahead. Uh, of course, if the individual resists, the procedure wouldn't move ahead, um, but it does allow for someone who loses capacity prior to their scheduled date to still receive a medically assisted death. I asked Helen Long if she was concerned about the targeting of vulnerable people as a result of Bill C-7. Well, I think our response is, much like the Trusan decision, um, the current law is discriminatory in some ways. It does um, not allow those whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. And I think Jean Trusan, the, the individual who was central in the case, um, both he and Nicole Gladu had long, you know, long-suffering conditions where they were it, there was no hope of them ever getting better. It was an, an irremediable condition. They were suffering, and they wanted to have the ability to make that choice for themselves. This is, a, you know, I don't feel it's a discriminatory practice. In fact, it's discriminating against those individuals not to let them have the right to choose themselves. And I think 
Justice Baudouin in the Superior Court decision actually said it well when she talked about the fact that every individual deserves to be assessed on a an individual basis, on a case-by-case basis, not lumped into a group of, of vulnerable people and denied that ability um, to choose. I think what's most important for us um, through this whole discussion is keeping in mind what's the, what's at the centre of the debate. And I think at the centre of the debate, debate is people who are suffering intolerably, who have a grievous and irremediable condition and who are looking to be able to make their own choice about what a dignified end of life looks like. And, and that's what's most important. I wanted to further investigate this idea of suffering based on illness. I reached out to a disability studies scholar for his take. I wanted to know how much end-of-life suffering had to do with a disability or impairment and how much might be a function of social factors. I'm uh, Dr. Jeff Preston. I'm an assistant professor of disability studies at Kings University College at Western University. Medical assistance in dying is, uh, it is a big, big, dense, complex question. Uh, and I think that all of us have complex feelings about it. I think my big concern right now is the ways in which we have tried to truncate or to simplify this conversation around end-of-life decisions uh, to try to codify it in a very quick and easy way. And I fear that we're missing some of the really important nuance in uh, the experiences that people have, the questions that people are confronting, and the ways in which we may be opening the door for a lot of people to end their lives for reasons that are not bodily in nature, but rather are a reflection of the systemic ableism that people with disabilities experience on a day-to-day basis. Bill C-7, I think, is a really troubling piece of legislation. Uh, it's a piece of legislation that has moved very rapidly through our, uh, our legal system, through our government system. It's a piece of documentation that is regularly touted as having a tremendous consultation, hearing from many Canadians, while not actually being able to clearly articulate whether or not many of those Canadians are those with disabilities and seemingly ignores the vast majority of disability organizations that have come out against the legislation. And I'm concerned that we are very quickly moving to open the door to assisted dying for people with disabilities while not doing really anything to support them to continue to live, not doing anything to enable people to live happy and safe lives. I'm concerned about the unintended consequences of this piece of legislation. I think that there are obviously many instances where individuals may choose to uh, to end their life early. Um, and I can absolutely understand the desire that that death should be dignified, um, it should be comfortable, and on an individual's terms. But as we move forward on, on Bill C-7, we are still actually awaiting feedback on some of the early outcomes of medical assistance in dying. We're actually just coming up on a point where we're gonna review how things are going so far. It seems incredibly dangerous for us to be moving forward on this legislation without knowing fully whether or not the system is working as intended and whether or not the safeguards are actually keeping people alive who should be remaining alive because they're not actually suffering from bodily issues, but rather they're suffering from our own inability to provide them the needs for them to live. I'm completely uh, torn on the question. I think it's extremely difficult. There are absolutely scenarios where I would support medical assistance in dying, where I think it makes complete sense and that we absolutely should be empowering people to make these decisions. My concern obviously is that we do need to draw some lines, that we do need to have some safeguards implemented. And that's where I think the dialogue really needs to start. I think that there actually might be quite a bit of consensus among Canadians. I just fear that things like Bill C-7 doesn't actually draw the line where most Canadians think the line should be drawn. If there was a possibility that people with disabilities were likely to feel greater pressure to avail themselves of a medically assisted death, 
Then, what about women, who form another group which is believed to be socially and economically disadvantaged? My name is Freya Hammond Thrasher. My pronouns are she/her, and I have a bachelor of sociology, and I'm currently working at an inner-city nonprofit in Western Canada. So my research investigates and challenges the claim that made legislation makes women more vulnerable. In fact, I found that many of the arguments that opponents of made make around gender end up reinforcing the gender issues they claim to be worried about, and attempt to prevent women's access to made based on assumptions rather than the science or experiences of women themselves. And I found, in general, that concerns around women and made tend to fall into three categories. So, the argument across all three of these categories is that in today's patriarchal society, women will be driven to request made because of their gender rather than their own free will. And initially, the argument is pretty convincing. So, in the first category about social and economic conditions, the argument goes that because women have fewer economic resources, higher incidences of depression. And are more likely to be widowed, uh, and they'd be widowed uh, later in life, which is the time where most people access MAID. Uh, because of these reasons, women would be more likely to want to die. So, according to this argument, MAID really would be what some opponents have called it—the last of many non-choices for women. If this argument was true, we'd expect to see higher rates of suicide in women as well. However, in 2019 in Canada, men were actually three times more likely to complete suicide than women. So, although women suffer from higher incidences of depression, they don't seem to access MAID at a higher rate、uh, than men in Canada.、Uh, the second category that I looked at in my research focuses on gender roles, and essentially the argument here goes that because women are traditionally raised to be willing to make self-sacrifices. They may request made to avoid being a burden to their families or society at large, especially since women are traditionally the ones who are supposed to be the caregivers, not the care receivers. However, since we know that men complete suicide more than women,、uh, studies have also suggested that suicide is stereotyped as a masculine and deviant action, where suicides by women are more stigmatized. So essentially, here the same argument that opponents to made make about gender roles could also be used to suggest that men might be more vulnerable under made legislation. Ultimately, I don't think that gender is like the main or only concern when it comes to made. To me, it seems like these arguments are mostly used as like a technique and a distraction in order to make a point, which is fair. But women are only one of the many groups affected by social factors like gender or race or disability. And these identities combine and intersect to create unique strengths and weaknesses for different people.、Um, so I argue that women shouldn't be barred from accessing MAID just because their lives are complex and sometimes unfair. My research was specifically on women, so obviously I can't really speak to disabilities quite as well. But I do see some parallels in terms,、uh, especially of the concern that、uh, MAID would target disabled people more often because. Society at large believes that disabled people's lives are less valuable, so we see that kind of similarly where、uh, people are raising concerns about women's lives、uh, being less valuable, or all of these different social factors making women not want to live. But in fact, we see a lot of、uh, people who are actually fighting for made out there are women, and they are actually people from disabled communities. So I believe like it's perfectly fine to have opinions on both sides of things. But given that people from within these communities are arguing、uh, for this to be part of their life experience,、um, I think that my research does help to kind of alleviate some of those concerns. It's clear that Bill C7 is dividing Canadians, but I wanted to know exactly who has sought a physician-assisted death after legalization in 2016. I approached Dr. James Downer for answers. My name is Dr. James Downer. I'm the head of the Division of Palliative Care here in the University of Ottawa. I'm also a critical care physician, and I have been involved in advocacy in the past around legalization of medical assistance in dying in Canada.、Uh, it was interesting to find, for example, that、uh, that people receiving medical assistance in dying were generally much more wealthy on average.、Um, they were very, very unlikely to be institutionalized. Uh, less likely to be widowed, more likely to be married, 
again, it's a demographic that you might describe actually as privileged uh, rather than vulnerable. Um, and I think people who were concerned that MAID was being driven by vulnerability, uh, I think can look at this research and, and look at research from every other jurisdiction that's published similar research has actually found the same thing, uh, that the people requesting and receiving medical assistance and dying are not the vulnerable. Um, they're actually the you know, typically wealthy, better educated, better connected to the system, majority culture, um, you know, living often independently, certainly with family members supporting them with a very high involvement of palliative care and palliative care services compared to the average population. I asked Dr. Downer about why people sought MAID. All of us, as we go through life, ultimately do change uh, our roles uh, with regards to others. And, you know, with, with simple aging and, and progression of our, our lives, we're not able necessarily to do all the things that we used to do. Um, and I think for some people that transition is slow, um, gradual. You have a lot of time to adapt to it. For some people, uh, they are, you know, spending their lives, for example, with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, functional impairments. Uh, and they're not able to do some of the things that many people in society can do. But that, that's not necessarily very distressing to them because it, those things were never part of their identity. They're never part of their lives. And so, you know, the fact that they can't do them is not distressing because they've, ne they've never been able to do them. Um, you know, th their identity is not built around that. And, um, and, and so that's the thing. I think it's, it's, it not, doesn't really relate to um, disability or impairment. It relates to change. The finding that medical assistance in dying was utilized by people with large social networks and support was surprising to me. I wanted to see if this research would help alleviate the fears that many disability advocates have around expanding medical assistance in dying. So I asked an author and disability activist if she felt at all reassured by Dr. Downer's findings. I'm Erin Clark, and I am an artist and a writer and the author of the memoir, If You Really Love Me, Throw Me Off the Mountain. It does sound a lot like very privileged people influencing the direction of legislation that will have, as far as they're concerned, unforeseen impact on vulnerable populations. There are definitely stories of people. The case at the heart of Bill C-7, Truchon himself, in his like last message before, receiving made said, you know, the pandemic means that I'm going to be isolated and I'm going to be alone. And, you know, like I just there, I don't have the resources to be in my own community and my family is far away. Like <laughs> we know, in fact, that it's not only wealthy people who are availing themselves of made, but I think that it's also a bit of a long-term vision that disabled disability rights people are presenting here. And it's something that they're very good at predicting. And what they're saying is, yeah, well-off privileged people who are used to control, a sense of control over their lives, who are afraid of the loss of that control, are asking for something that will lead to the reduction of services of people who are reliant on public services and government funding. And when death is an option, where do you stop intervening? At what point do you say, well, this is ridiculous. You want a $50,000 wheelchair? Ugh. Like, where is that line? And it's interesting to me that the, that the line of division between those who are supporting it and the ones who are opposing it, it kind of seems to be drawn between class and privilege. I asked Erin Clark what she thought about this idea that MAID is all about autonomy. It's autonomy, but it's still very much wrapped up in the authority of a doctor. I know that the idea is that only a person who re requests it, like you have to request it, it can never be suggested to you. But we, we already know that that boundary is not respected and that it's suggested all of the time. So really, the like my understanding of the legalese of the bill is that it's providing more authority or like a broader working range to medical professionals. That's not the same thing as, as providing autonomy to disabled people. It's cheaper to provide MAID. 
as a nod to the autonomy of disabled people. It isn't cheap to provide the same access to quality of life and to respect the autonomy of disabled people when what we want is to live. So our equipment, our community care, our you know, the, the accommodations that we are requesting in order to be employed, to have access to housing, these things cost money. And when we're asking for those things, our autonomy is the least important part of it. So we are subject to services that make arbitrary and capricious decisions on our behalf that reduce our quality of life, that keep us below the poverty line. And there's something... On an, I mean, I can't deny on an emotional level that feels incredibly painful to hear politicians talk about how important our autonomy is. Non-disabled politicians as well, who, who are also not succeeding in conveying that they understand the rigors of ableism that we have to contend with in order to thrive. To hear them talking so eagerly about our autonomy only when it comes to our, our right to choose death, is, it's, it's chilling. Given that MAID is such a contentious issue, I was genuinely curious about whether a person with a disability might have had a change of heart about medical assistance in dying. My name is Kevin Penny and I currently live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I work for the province of Nova Scotia, supporting students with disabilities. I think when MAID came out, I was a supporter of it in the sense, as long as there was safe falls. And, I, and I, I did review it a bit at the time because it was very interesting to me. And since then, since this Bill C-7, I've reviewed it a lot more. And I think it is a good case for certain people with the safeguards put in place, even with persons with disabilities, I think, uh, under the current bill. If the appropriate procedures are put in place and it's looked at as a whole approach, I think there is a case because for some individuals, chronic pain, for example, that can be debilitating. And if that's what they're dealing with every day of their life and they are suffering and do not have a quality of life, I think like every other Canadian, treated equally, should have that path if they choose to do it. But when persons with disabilities are given a specific path, and no one else is, that's where the danger is. And I keep bringing that point up, Joetta, because I think that's the important note that everyone has to put forward, is we just want equal treatment like everybody else. They're only making this path for people with disabilities. There's other people who would not have the same pathway to medical assisted in dying. For example, I think a good analogy is if someone is willing to commit suicide and jump up on a bridge, we'll pull that person down, give them all the supports they can do so they will not make that decision and they will continue on their life. But in this way, you can kind of see it as, okay, if you want to make that decision, they'll lay down the carpet and push the path and provide very few barriers to, a, to you make that very serious and, and, and very difficult decision. So far, I feel we've only been talking about physical disabilities. By now, it feels urgent we look at the simmering debate about the exclusion of people with a severe mental illness as their sole reason for seeking mate. Many people were relieved that severe mental illness was excluded from Bill C-7 because they believe that there is no such thing as a treatment-resistant mental illness. My name is uh, John Maher. I'm a psychiatrist. I work in uh, Barrie on an assertive community treatment team. These are teams uh, that are set up in Ontario. There are 80 of them whose mandate it is to serve and support the people in Ontario who are living with the most severe and persistent forms of mental illness primarily schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder. And in addition to my psychiatrist hat, I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Ethics and Mental Health. What we know is that treatment resistant is often a misnomer. It means undertreated, poorly treated, treatment not available. 
And so we're talking in Ontario and Canada about offering suicide to people who haven't even had a chance to get treatment, proper, basic, well-researched, evidence-based treatment. And by treatment, I don't, don't just mean medications. I mean family supports, housing. And uh, as you know, in Ontario, in the country, when, when people have a disability, they're, they're tragically forced to live in poverty, uh, which of course contributes to, to suffering and, and how we manage our lives. Not to mention the loneliness and isolation that goes along with the stigmatization of mental illness. I'm not pretending there aren't people who suffer terribly, um, but the other, I guess, strange logical thing I struggle with is we already have the freedom to kill ourselves in Canada. I'm, I can, I can kill myself. I'm not sure why I need a doctor to do it, and. I hesitate to to say this publicly, but feel like it's come to this point. When I hear MAID advocates saying that, you know, MAID is not suicide, the academic literature kind of finds that quite um, bizarre. Um, The articles will say assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide, what they call MAID in Canada. But there are a lot of other ways to, again, I hesitate to even say this, but to die peacefully. I would never, ever want to encourage suicide. My, my, my work, my profession aims at helping people find purpose and meaning, reduce suffering. And even if we can't always get rid of all the symptoms of an illness, we can always do something to help with relationships, with support. Shared suffering is reduced suffering. Um, so if you were to ask me, are there people who just can't get better, I and my colleagues who actually do this work with the sickest people have not been able to come up with cases of people we haven't been able to help. And I have had patients say to me, if you, my doctor, my psychiatrist, kill me, it's not suicide. And it puts me in the perverse role of of somehow providing moral exoneration of of, uh, the person if, if I say it's okay, it must be okay. If the government says it's okay, it must be okay. But the position it puts me in is twofold, because I know these people can be helped. The average length of time someone is with an ACT team in Ontario is five to seven years. And whenever I get a new patient, in my mind, I'm looking at about three years of recovery time, of treatment time, to get to get to, to where a person is feeling a whole lot better and starting to live their life in the way they want to live it. So when someone says to me, you know, I want, I want made, and it's a far different thing than someone who's terminally ill. And I should add, I worked in palliative care. I worked in with children with cancer. It's a far different thing to ask your doctor to, to kill you when you've got six months to live versus 60 years to live. Uh, the other thing that, that has, for me, been horrific is I had a new patient recently, and the parents met with me and wanted to know, was I going to kill their da- daughter if the legislation were changed to allow it? And how horrific that parents had to ask their daughter's doctor whether by coming for help for me to treat her very, very treatable mental illness, whether I was going to kill her. And this is so horrific for me as a as a matter of professional duty and responsibility. I've I've tried to come up with analogies to communicate what this is like, and to me, it's like asking the Dalai Lama to go fight in a war. When I have colleagues who say, "Yes, I should help people kill themselves because that's the humane thing to do," I get the motivation, I get the perspective, but I'm saying bluntly, it's pragmatically wrong. We'll check in with physicians again in a little bit. But first, what about those people who live with severe mental illnesses? Some advocates believe that excluding severe mental illness from Bill C-7 is a lost opportunity. I'm Don Scully. I'm uh, an international journalist. I was born in New Zealand, but I've spent most of my time in many other countries. Uh, I've done investigative reports and documentaries in 70 countries and I've covered uh, wars in 36 zones and uh, I've spent a lot of time in psychiatric wards 
my career itself has been littered with uh, trauma, and the arguments uh, against giving us the right to the right to die uh, is facetious and arrogant. And um, the, I think it's best summarized by uh, one of our premier research psychiatric hospitals. And uh, that's the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, in, in Toronto. And um, they say their line is there's always hope for recovery, and that's their reason for not uh, supporting made for the mentally ill. There's always hope for recovery. Well, to put it in the vernacular, that's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. I myself have been through, uh, I've suffered from depression, severe incurable depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and severe anxiety disorder. And I have had every tablet and pill and known to science. The word hope is a terrible misnomer because um, there is no hope for, um, like there's no hope for a terminally ill cancer patient or a person dying of a heart attack. They are they're probably in palliative care and, and can often be given, made, and die a peaceful and dignified death. And that's the key to what most of us in the, that I know in the mental health community want, is a peaceful, dignified, um, and safe death. The worst thing to do is to commit suicide without letting anyone know and shocking your family or loved ones and the horror that they feel and the guilt that they feel is transferred by your actions. I should confess at this stage that um, I have attempted suicide twice. And uh, I have clearly, <laughs> clearly I have failed twice. Um, but and, and I want the right to die under my own conditions, and with with dignity and with my family around me. Clearly, the debate on made for severe mental illness is far from being resolved. With that said, I did feel that for the full picture, it would be useful to get the point of view of physicians, including palliative care doctors, nurses, and maid assessors and providers. Canada is somewhat unique because nurses with a nurse practitioner designation can in fact provide maid, while registered nurses provide wraparound care. I'm Barb Pessett, and I'm a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia, and I hold a research chair in palliative and end-of-life care. It's not uncommon for patients to actually broach the conversation of medical assistance in dying with a nurse first, and often that conversation is a bit of a veiled one. And so uh, a patient may say something like, oh, you know, I'm really getting tired of this. Or, um, you know, I, I really have a wish to just get all this over with and, and to die. And so, of course, then the nurse has to conduct a very careful conversation around what that patient is actually saying. And how they'll normally do that is ask them to tell their suffering story. Can you tell me about what's going on with you? What has that been like for you? And so in the course of that conversation, if it turns out that somebody actually is asking about medical assistance in dying, then nurses, unless they're conscientious objectors, uh, will do an effective referral to somebody who can actually enter that process. Once somebody has actually made a decision to have medical assistance in dying, then it's often a nurse who will help them work through the, the logistics of that things like, you know, what do you want to have happen during that time? You know, how are we going to set the stage for you for your last few moments? Um, nurses emphasize very much family-centered care, and so they're often the ones who are also paying attention to what's happening to families in that process and helping them to make sense, to help educate them around what to expect 
And then, of course, nurses are very central in the bereavement process as well. So they'll walk through with families after the process um, just to answer their questions and provide the type of support that they need. Registered nurses who also have an NP designation in many of our provinces in Canada can also actually independently do assessments for MAID eligibility and do provisions. And that's difficult for nurse practitioners across Canada, mostly because their role in that has not been very visible yet. And health regions have had differing policies in terms of how to, you know, provide adequate compensation for this to do for them to do this, whether they can do it. And so it's been a bit of a shifting landscape for them. But let's assume that they live in a province or a territory where they can independently provide an assessment and a provision, then they would function very similar to how a physician would function. One maid assessor and provider talked about why she felt her role was important. I'm Ellen Weep. I was a family doctor for over 30 years and uh, worked in abortion and contraception. I run a women's clinic and I started doing medical abortion, uh, <laughs> correction, I started doing medical assistance in dying as soon as uh, it was legal in Canada back at the beginning of 2016. The most important principles that I have always acted on as a doctor was the ones where it says to cure sometimes, to relieve often, and to comfort always. What uh, MAID does is allow us to honor someone's wishes and to end their unbearable suffering. And I have found it to be of all my work in 45 years as a doctor to be the, the most valuable work that I've ever done, the one that gives me the greatest feeling that I am helping people more than anything I've ever done. And I've delivered over a thousand babies and I've helped um, a lot of people through difficult times. I am so incredibly glad to be a Canadian we have a law that gives us the right to have some control over our deaths. We're all going to die, and um, it's it's scary to face death with when you see how much suffering is involved for many people. So the idea that we can have a little bit of control is um, wonderful, and I feel so honored to be part of that. But some physicians, especially those working in palliative care, continue to have concerns, particularly with Bill C-7. My name is Leonie Herks, and I'm a palliative medicine physician. I'm the head of palliative care at Queen's University in Kingston and the immediate past president of, of the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians. I'm also a co-author of the Made to Mad Statement, which is a group of physicians who are concerned with the expansions of medical assistance in dying through Bill C-7. And uh, we've uh, had over 1,200 signatories on our Made to Mad statement expressing concerns about this bill. You know, we have a number of concerns as physicians, thinking about our role in uh, restoring health and promoting well-being and uh, protecting life uh, with the way that Bill C-7 extends um, assisted suicide uh, to all persons living with uh, chronic illness and disabilities who are not dying. Um, so C-14, when it was set up under the post-Carter case, uh, was intended for people who were very close to the end of life. Um, but in C-7, now we're expanding uh, death as a treatment to suffering for anyone, um, regardless of, of a prognosis or being close to death. This bill actually sets up two tracks for access to medical assistance in dying a track what's basically currently under C14, which is for people that have a reasonably foreseeable death, uh, and then a track for people who do not have a reasonably foreseeable death, so could have chronic illness or disability and mental health as a reason for suffering if they have a comorbid um, chronic illness. And so the 90 days that you're referring to in this legislation is for track two or people that don't have a reasonably foreseeable death. Now, unfortunately, uh, those patients with chronic illness 90 days is wholly inadequate uh, 
a time period to wait because access to care that they need for chronic pain, access to psychiatry, for treatments for, for example, rheumatoid arthritis to be tri- trialed and um, titrated and evaluated for efficacy for pretty much any chronic health condition takes much more than 90 days to have an effect. Um, for people that have serious uh, accidents or strokes, spinal cord injuries, we know that suicidal ideation actually peaks at 90 days um, after diagnosis. And so, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the medical uh, community and literature that 90 days is just not sufficient time period to give people when they're not facing their own death um, and potentially if they had a premature death, would lose decades of their life and could very well have a treatable illness but be suicidal and depressed. And that's the reason for for choosing MAIDS. We do not have adequate um, questions being asked to know that safeguards are working. We don't ask and monitor what the suffering of the person and what access to care that they had, what care was provided that led them to request MAIDS. Um, We only know what their underlying diagnosis was and, and the data that's collected is being self-reported by me providers. We don't hear from the patient or families themselves that are involved. And there's no real-time monitoring. So if a red flag is raised, like, for example, a patient didn't have access to palliative care and that's why they chose need, there's no stop mechanism in the process. So we're in a very uh, unusual situation in Canada where, you know, the vast majority of people do not want MAID. We know the statistics are about 2% of all deaths. Um, but yet those patients don't have necessarily the supports that they need to live with dignity, whether it's um, accessible, you know, housing, equipment, um, home care, palliative care over, you know, up to 70% of Canadians who need palliative care don't have access to it. Um, but yet they have a right to access need. So there's there's a lot of um, discrimination in the system and uh, something that needs to be addressed before we go uh, expanding MAID, people need to have the supports they need to live um, and to see their lives as being worthwhile before we say death is the answer. Well, I would say death is never the answer, but I think that it, the government has the responsibility to make sure we're helping people live first and that death is a last resort. Of course, even MAID assessors advise some caution and advocate safeguards. Some think the government could have structured Bill C-7 differently. I'm Chantal Perrault, and I'm a family physician and provider of medical assistance in dying in Toronto. I do support the expansion of the eligibility criteria, but there are a number of of aspects of Bill C-7 that I think are fundamentally flawed and will actually make it harder for for patients to receive MAID. Um, The the main thing is the division into the two-track system, which I think is totally unnecessary. There, it's possible to have safeguards and to protect people who do not want made in other ways. And what would those other protections be? Well, I think first and foremost, the, the, to receive me- medical assistance in dying, you have to go through a fairly lengthy, detailed and quite arduous process for, for most patients. And in that assessment process, the the clinicians who are doing the assessments make sure that the person meets the eligibility criteria for MAID. And two independent medical assessments are required. And again, they're very lengthy and very detailed. And they explore with the person their reasons for seeking MAID and make sure that they do meet the eligibility criteria. And I think that's a sufficient safeguard for somebody who is requesting MAID. When I um, do the assessments, and I usually meet with patients a, a couple of times in the course of the whole made assessment process, I do invite them to include family and friends that if they would like them to be part of the interview um, and um, definitely want to be able to answer their questions. I consider the uh, friends and family members of my patients to be part of the circle of, of people for whom I care. It's not just the patient who's or the person who's requesting made, but uh, also the people supporting them. Um, I also make sure to spend time alone with the patients because there are a number of questions that I want to explore with them without anybody else present to make sure that they're, they, they have an opportunity to speak with me in private and that I have an opportunity to ask them questions that, that I don't want them to be influenced potentially by other people being in the room. And again, that's part of the process to make sure that the request for made is a voluntary request on the part of the, the patient and that they uh, I want to hear their description of their intolerable suffering and make sure that they do meet the eligibility criteria. 
So a, a typical interview has many, many questions where explore the medical history, explore the social and family and personal history. And, and I really try to dig deeper in, and get to know the person from the perspective of their values and principles to try to understand where they're coming from in making the decision to choose MAID. Um, is it consistent with their values and principles? Is, is it a long held belief that they, the right to die with dignity, that kind of thing. So I, I wanna have a good understanding of that going into the process. In the acute reactive phase of, of an illness or a condition, there may be an impulsive decision to, do, to choose something like MAID. Um, and I don't want any of the patients that I see to make an impulsive or reactive decision. I want it to be a well thought out decision that is consistent with their values and principles and long held beliefs. Um, so somebody who has just had an accident hasn't yet had an opportunity to live with the consequences of that and to receive the whatever care and support they may be able to get to live the best life they, they possibly could. And I would want certainly want someone to um, take advantage of that. And somebody who has lived for a long time in a wheelchair who decides they want made, I would want to know why they wanted made and want to really understand that. Was it because they were in a wheelchair or is there, are there other circumstances that are going on in their lives? Is their health deteriorating to the point that they cannot live a life that's meaningful to them? I think that's the important thing. I heard from another physician who says that rather than advocate made, Physicians need to remember that every suffering person is an opportunity to care. Thomas Bouchard, I'm a family doctor in Calgary, Alberta, and I have a general family medicine practice and take care of uh, elderly people in nursing homes that include people with disabilities. The creative process for me is trying to find, first of all, what is the problem that we want to address? Is there something, some unmet need that we can find? And that's not always obvious to the patient. They might think that MAID is a solution for them, but perhaps they haven't thought of everything. So this to me is a hopeful and creative process so that people don't feel pushed down one direction when there might be a solution that they haven't thought of. I would kind of challenge people who are um, endorsing, say, Bill C-7 or, or MAID in general to really say, am I trying to embrace a creative process in medicine or am I uh, trying to find an easy way out of a problem? I asked Dr. Bouchard if the availability of MAID might have an impact on the doctor-patient relationship. The important thing in the relationship between a patient and a physician is that the patient should not be feel forced into anything. And that means not bringing up things that are not on the table. For example, suggesting to a disabled patient that they should consider MAID, which has been done and people have felt coerced by that conversation. And then there also shouldn't be coercion on the side of the physician being told by a politician, for example, that you have to carry on your conversation in a certain way with your patient. That really disrupts that trusting relationship between the two. And there has to be a non-coercive trusting relationship on both sides. So I'm not going to force a patient to do anything and neither should the government force me to do something that I don't believe is good for my patient. So we need to protect that relationship of trust and it goes both ways. So with all this debate, what is it going to take to find common ground on MAID? Is a dialogue even possible? The stats have shown that MAID has saved $83 million, but it hasn't saved a single life. MAID is here to stay, and now it's that tricky part where we have to balance the autonomy of people with, with safeguards to make sure that it's not abused. I am bothered a little bit in the discourse around Bill C-7 by the fact that you know, on the one hand, many people are upset saying that Bill C-7's debate and discussion has been rushed. Those same individuals, though, spend most of their time and their airtime talking about questions that were answered in Carter or answered in Trushaw. You know, ultimately, if you don't get the bill right and you introduce other extraneous features or there's problems uh, in the bill, we're just going to end up, you know, in short order, being right back in the courts. 
I also think that conversation between both parties, those opposed and in favor of MAID, would be valuable. Lots of valuable observations come from people's accounts of their own experiences on both sides. And I think maybe if we heard from both sides, we'd be able to come to more of a compromise that accommodates those who don't want to be made vulnerable, as well as those who believe that MAID is an important part of their life trajectory. Whatever your position on medical assistance in dying, it's clear that the debate isn't going away. All we can do is engage with the discussion and listen to one another. I would like to thank the many people who contributed their time and expertise to this exploration of the debate on MAID. The technical producers for this special edition of The Pulse are Nisreen Abdul-Majid and Matt Agnew. Our assistant producer is Sam Robinson. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. And I've been your host and producer, Juwita Gupta. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.